0: This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional websites or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code LEFT8. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Sustainable Man, The Majority Report, The Progressive Magazine, The Media Matters Minute, The Tom Hartman Program, Moyers & Company, and The Young Turks. And a note that this episode contains traces of positive news and hope, so please brace yourself for that shock to your system.
1: the economists say, if you clear-cut the forest, take the money and put it in the bank, you can make 6 or 7 percent. If you clear-cut the forest, put it into Malaysia or Papua New Guinea, you can make 30 or 40 percent. So who cares whether you keep the forest? Cut it down. Put the money somewhere else. When those forests are gone, put it in fish. When the fish are gone, put it in computers. Money doesn't stand for anything. And money now grows faster than the real world. Conventional economics is a form of brain damage. Economics is so fundamentally disconnected from the real world. It is destructive. If you take a, an introductory course in economics, the professor in the first lecture will show a slide of the economy. And it looks very impressive, you know, raw materials, extraction process, manufacture, wholesale, retail, with arrows going back and forth. And they try to impress you because they think that they know damn well. Economics is not a science but they're trying to fool us into thinking that it's a real science thought. Economics is a set of values that they then try to use mathematical equations and all that stuff and pretend that it's a science. But if you ask the economist, in that equation, where do you put the ozone layer? Where do you put the deep underground aquifers of fossil water? Where do you put topsoil or biodiversity? Their answer is, oh, those are externalities. Well, then you might as well be on Mars. That economy is not based in anything like the real world. It's life, the web of life that filters water in the hydrologic cycle. It's microorganisms in the soil that create the soil that we can grow our food in. Nature performs all kinds of services. Insects fertilize all of the flowering plants. These services are vital to the health of the planet. Economists call these externalities. That's nuts! We're told over and over the economy is the bottom line. I don't think so. What kind of a world would I like to see our species generations from now? I hope it will be a creature that understands what the real bottom line is.
2: I wanted to uh, make sure that we had time to play this clip from uh, from Elizabeth Warren on CNBC the other day. It's an extended clip; it's five minutes long, uh, but it is really just fantastic. Uh, so much so that even Jim Cramer tweeted out yesterday. Uh, There's this weird idea that Elizabeth Warren uh, somehow bested uh, CNBC yesterday. <laughs> on uh, and uh... it she is on there talking about um, the the introduction of a new glass steagle bill and um, we can talk more about for those who are not uh... familiar as to why we need this now i think it's quite obvious in terms of too big to fail has gotten even bigger than it was uh, and the implications. It, it, some will argue that it may or may not have uh, stopped the uh, financial uh, crisis of 2008, but it certainly would have helped um, uh, mitigate its impact in many respects. Uh, but here is Elizabeth Warren on with the CNBC uh, morons, and it was really uh, enjoyable. And understand, too, that uh, Glass-Siegel would probably also, in some ways, inhibit. Um, Uh, CNBC's value to its uh, dwindling viewership because uh, it just the go-go, you know, when you don't have um, the resources uh, that you have when you have joined forces with a commercial bank and you're an investment bank it, um, it probably makes you a little bit more conservative in your choices at the very least you have far less ability to do as much systemic damage but here is that clip now
3: Senator, I'm going to just jump in here and and, and ask you what you would say to some of the criticisms of your proposed bill here. For example, we were speaking to Chris Whalen earlier on today from uh, Carrington Investment Services, and he was saying it would be hugely disruptive to impose this new Glass-Steagall. And one of the things that he says could be a result is it would really hurt credit creation, which obviously in turn would hurt the economy. What would you say, for example, to that?
4: You know, that was pretty much what the banks were saying back in 1932 and 1933. They kept saying no, no, no to Glass-Steagall. They raised all kinds of objections to it. And they kept hammering away at it because they wanted to be able to get access to those deposits in order to fuel more speculative trading. And what this says is no. We can't do that. If you're going to have FDIC insurance, you're going to have savings accounts and checking accounts. They really do have to be walled off. Remember, we had 50 years following the passage of Glass-Steagall in which we had a tiny number of bank failures. That whole boom and bust cycle from 1797 to 1933 went away. And in that period of time, we built a strong, robust middle class. What happened is we started chipping away. And part of the chipping away at that was to say load up the banks with more and more risk, get them more integrated and let them get bigger and bigger. And when that happened, we were in the position of having to bail them out when they got into big financial trouble.
3: Senator, I I will push back, though, on the relative security that you're portraying Glass-Steagall to have given us because Continental, Illinois, in the early 80s, was the the seventh largest bank in America, it failed, almost Mm -hmm. set off basically another major banking crisis, Shouldn't we just tell the American consumer that no matter what we do, there will be bank boom and bust cycles, no matter what the laws and regulations? You can't protect.
2: Okay, before now, uh, Elizabeth Warren has uh... a response to this but the the response that occurred to me was that the guy said we almost had a banking crisis <laughs> so we had the lar- one of the largest banks in the country go under and we almost had a banking crisis i wonder what it was that prevented it from being a systemic crisis uh... Uh-huh. i wonder This guy barking up the wrong tree, and clearly just has, you know, this is one of those instances. And we mentioned it with Josh Fox on the program yesterday when he went up against Niall Ferguson on uh, Bill Maher, where you love to see someone who has a an inch deep worth of awareness of what the issue is because they've gotten talking points against someone who really does know what they're talking about. And here's Elizabeth Warren responding.
4: Every no. That is just wrong. Why? Look at the history. From I seven, have to look at history. We were filled with booms and busts from, from the Dutch no, no, tulip no. crisis to now. From 1797 to 1933, the American banking system crashed about every 15 years. In 1933, we put good reforms in place for which Glass-Steagall was the centerpiece. And from 1933 to the early 1980s—that's a 50-year period—we didn't have any of that. None. We kept the system steady but and secure, that, that, it, and it was only as we started deregulating, you start hitting the SNL crisis, And what did we do? We deregulated some more, and then you hit long-term capital management at the end of the 90s. And what did we do as a country? This country continued to deregulate more, and then we hit the big crash in 2008. You are not going to defend the proposition that regulation can never work. It I, I, did, did I didn't work. say
3: regulation. Never worked, Senator. By, by far and away, and I agree, there were fewer bank failures in that time after Glass-Steagall. Few, I as
4: in, of the big ones, no. zero.
3: Park Middle Illinois was the seventh biggest bank in the uh, United uh, States it took it
4: 50 years to get there But Senator, you're on
5: he the record. You're on the record saying Glass-Steagall. Piece. Glass-Steagall would not have prevented the financial crisis. Not you know?
4: all by itself. That's absolutely right. But what Glass-Steagall can do is it can wind some more of the risk out of the system. It can help bring down. The size of the largest banking institutions. Don't forget, you said there was too much concentration in the banking industry in 2008. Now here we are in 2013, and the big four are 30 percent bigger. That puts too much risk back in the system. There's other
6: ways. There's other ways of, uh, other ways of, of shrinking them, um, obviously. But well,
4: with,
3: with all due respect, Senator, every report I've read, every person I've spoken to says that there's a very, very, very slim chance of this, of this even passing.
4: Well, let me put it this way: If you don't fight for it, the chances are zero. And-
2: I-, I love this. Well, now that we've decided that we can't really comment on that, uh, we can't make the argument that your policy is bad. Do you think there's any chance of it passing? I remind you that I don't. I, I I do not know that these CNBC people have ever said to a single Republican Congressperson, "Hey, you've tried to repeal." Obamacare 67 times. It has failed. Why do you guys keep doing this? This is the first time this bill is going to come up.
4: Remember who my partners are in this one. I've got John McCain standing with me. I couldn't ask for a better fire. We've got Maria Cantwell. We've got Angus King. We've got a Democrat, a Republican, an Independent. All people who but, are willing but, to but get but out so, there. you,
7: you know what the prospects are. The House has voted 37 times to. Uh,
6: you know, on o- on Obamacare to to defund I, it, and I mean, is this any
7: different? I mean, you're making a statement, but but we want Congress to do things that actually have a chance of of, of
3: happening and, and become laws.
2: You know, that's is, a, is this any different? And now the fact is, it's actually been 67, but this guy says 37. Is it any different to try and bring this up in a bipartisan fashion one time in the Senate as opposed to what the
0: Republicans doing I mean, this is just. Also, he brought up the Obamacare thing to Elizabeth Warren.
5: I doubt he's ever brought it up to his Republican. Exactly. Go ahead. This seems like more of
4: the same... Go ahead. No, no, but I was just going to say, you know, I remember going on television multiple times, including here, when I talked about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau when the big banks were spending more than a million dollars a day lobbying against it, and when everybody told me, you'll never get that thing through. Why are you even trying? The chances of passing it are slim to none. And yet, look around. We now have a good, strong Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. It's recovered a half a billion dollars for families who got cheated. It's out there working on behalf of military families, on behalf of seniors, on behalf... Students, we got that agency because we got out and fight, fought for it. I actually believe in that.
2: Well, okay, well, we've got to move on. <laughs> and so, uh, of course, this is what I want to read just again Jim Cramer's tweet, tweet from uh, yesterday. There's some weird strain of thought that CNBC got beaten by Senator Warren. I like the senator, but she had no capital NO impact.
0: Wow! Well,
2: uh, there you go, folks. All right. Well, let me uh, tell you,
0: I've seen this video passed so much that I'll guarantee you the impact of this interview has brought awareness to that bill.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, not only did she not have no impact. I would imagine this is a a surprising net gain for the chances of this bill to pass, particularly since uh, had uh, she not handed it to him, nobody would have seen in this video because nobody wants to CNBC.
5: Nobody's watching.
0: Squarespace is a platform for building professional-grade websites so easily that anyone can do it. That's the first thing you need to know. And a while ago, I was contemplating building a new website for the show. Of course, it never happened because I couldn't get my act together. But I was talking to a friend of mine who helps maintain the current site, and he was suggesting that I go with the same free service I use now and I'm having so much trouble with for the new site. Because as a professional web developer, he was super excited about how you could change anything you wanted or add a million plugins or you know manipulate the code any way you can imagine. And I push back responding that, hey, you know I'm not a web developer, right? I don't know how to do any of those things you're saying. I need a site that just works and that I can maintain without begging friends for help. I said, what about Squarespace? I've heard really good things about them. You know, it's easy to use, makes great looking websites, and it's really flexible. So it's kind of the best of all worlds, but best of all, when something goes wrong, I wouldn't be on my own in the wilderness trying to figure out how to fix it myself. You know, there's someone there whose job it is to help me fix the problem. And I cannot tell you how quickly I would be willing to throw money at a company like Squarespace that's capable of fulfilling that promise. So if you're like me and you need your own awesome-looking website, but you want to focus on the things you actually like, like producing a podcast or crocheting pillow toppers to sell online... Then I think you'll find that Squarespace is exactly what you've been looking for. And when you do sign up, you can use the special offer code LEFT8 that's L E F T and the number 8 and get 10% off their service, which frankly is already pretty dirt cheap for what you're getting. So again, the offer code is LEFT8 to get 10% off when you create your own space at squarespace.com.
8: President Obama gave a good, strong, progressive speech in Galesburg, Illinois, on the economy. It was great to hear him decry inequality and our winner-take-all economy. He was right to talk about the dwindling odds on upward mobility that confront most young Americans today. It was a relief to hear him go after the slash-and-burn Republicans, and it was refreshing to hear him vow to do whatever he could on his own, to get the economy cooking. But the speech wasn't without its flaws. He stressed over and over again the problems of the middle class rather than those of the poor and the unemployed, though they are the ones who are hurting the most. He mentioned that in the past 50 years, it has become harder for unions to fight for the middle class, but he didn't tell us why that was, and the answer is obvious. Employers have flagrantly violated the labor laws of the land. But all in all, I liked the speech, especially his denunciation of what he called money's power, both over the economy and over our politics. And I liked his invocation of community. We're not a mean people, he said. We're not a selfish people. We're not a people that just looks out for number one. This call of his to move beyond selfishness should ring in the halls of Congress and in boardrooms around America. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. (laughs)
2: The <laughs> is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Emily Airwood. This week, President Obama kicked off a series of economic speeches focused on the idea that a strong middle class leads to a stronger economy. Right-wing media figures have attacked President Obama's so-called middle-out approach to economic growth. Here's Brian Kilmeade on Fox & Friends. If you talk to economists, if you talk to the people that do this for a living, the President's principles of building from the middle out don't make sense. He wants people to say, well, CEOs make too much, you don't make enough, therefore, salaries are stuck. Blame the rich people. But how are you supposed to build from the middle out? And Rush them off.
6: This has never Not once worked. It has never succeeded. This formula of the middle class leading the economic rebound, it's not possible. The middle class benefits from it, but an economic recovery is not caused by the middle class. An economic expansion is not caused by the middle class.
2: Contrary to the right-wing media's suggestions, there's actually growing consensus, including from Nobel Prize-winning economist Joseph Stieglitz, that economic prosperity begins with the middle class. For more on this and other stories, please.
5: Along those same lines, Rush Limbaugh, a couple of days ago on his show, this is this is the this is why sometimes you find it so hard to have a reasonable conversation with your crazy brother-in-law over Thanksgiving dinner, and uh, you know about economics or politics, is because you've got these media pundits like Rush Limbaugh going off on stuff that just simply ain't so. I mean, it's like. It's like having cult members try to convince you that humans came from the planet Xenu, and someday when we're all clear the spaceships are gonna show up and take us all back. Which seems to work for some movie stars, but not most people, I think. So anyhow, here's Limbaugh. He says, uh uh he quotes first of all, he quotes a New York Times article by Anne Lowry. And uh, quotes the article as saying, "President Obama says prosperity does not trickle down, and that a rising tide does not lift all boats." The conservative policies predicated on those ideas, Obama maintains, amount to a "you're on your own" economics, where the country really, when the country really needs a "we're in this together" approach. So then comes Limbaugh commenting on it. In short, what Obama is going to say in these speeches, he says. The president is going to say, and I'm, I'm, there's a few ellipses in here. I'm, the, the whole thing is rather long. but The president, I'm not taking out anything that I think changes the context of this. The president is going to say that prosperity comes from the middle out, rather than the top down. And then Limbaugh makes this astounding comment. Never mind that this is never, not once worked. It has never succeeded this formula, the middle class leading the economic rebound. It's not possible. The middle class benefits from it, but an economic recovery is not caused by the middle class, and economic expansion is not caused by the middle class. the middle class by and large are consumers. says Limbaugh. So what causes that economic expansion? If it's not people getting decent paychecks and then going to the store with those decent paychecks and buying things, so that the stores then have to buy those things from their wholesalers, so the wholesalers have to buy them from the manufacturers, and the manufacturers have to hire people to make them, so that those people go to work making things and they get a decent paycheck and then they go to the store and buy. You know, I mean, this is called the virtuous cycle. This is something that Adam Smith wrote about in Wealth of Nations in 1776. It has stood as economic theory. Demand drives economy. It has stood as economic theory without challenge, from 1776 until 1982, when Ronald Reagan had dinner with 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 a couple of wackadoodles, and one of them pulled out a napkin, or it was sitting on the table, and he drew, you know, Art laughter, he drew this curve, and suddenly we had supply side economics. Ronnie, way Reagan, you know. Kind of on the road to Alzheimer's dementia, looks at that and goes, Oh, that makes sense. Rich people make us rich. Or rich people create the middle class. Forgetting that if the middle class doesn't work and doesn't buy things, rich people don't exist. But here's what Limbaugh has to say about it In order for the middle class to consume to the level that economic growth takes place, they must be paid a lot of money. And in order for that to happen, the businesses where they work must grow. The places where they are employed must do well. They must be making more. They must have more customers than they're servicing. Whatever the enterprise is, it has to grow so the people working there earn more, get raises, get more benefits, and so that new people get hired. This idea that the economy bubbles up from below is absurd. So, in limbonomics, when businesses grow magically because rich people decide to make them grow. When businesses grow, when businesses do well, right? In order for that to happen, the businesses they work for must grow, the places they are employed must do well. They must be making more. They must have more customers they're serving. Whatever the enterprise is, it has to grow. So when rich people and businesses are doing well, then Limbaugh says, "In order for the middle class to consume to that level of economic uh, to the to the level that economic growth takes place, they must be paid a lot of money. So therefore, when the businesses do well, they pay their workers well." Says Limbaugh. Well, up until 1980, businesses did pay their workers well. We had unions that forced them to basically. But now, you know, since Reaganomics, not so much. The income of working people in this country since Ronald Reagan came into office has actually fallen. The income of the CEOs and the investor class, the Mitt Romneys of the world, the Donald Trumps of the world, it's up over 275%. If you look at the top one hundredth of one percent, it's up, you know, over a thousand percent. So no. I mean businesses are doing really well right now. The corporate profits right now, last quarter, were higher than they have been in the United States in over fifty years. CEO pay is higher than it has been since the 19th century. And we really didn't keep good numbers back then. It might be higher than it's ever been in the history of America. Investors are making more money than ever. Look at the stock market. Is any of that translating into higher wages, like Limbaugh says? No.
1: Give us talking points and false choice after false choice And there's no prominent voices on the left Five companies own everything you read, hear and see Misleading the people still calling it freedom of the press the Disaster of epic proportions They got us all in Traitors in our midst Screwed over when corporations bought in To Congress Representatives of representing mostly lobbyists While the typical oblivious American is fine with all this Giving the daily dose of celebrity gossip Government held hostage, we kick the worst out of office But at the core it remains rotten regardless Now how much can you rob the system Before it can be classified as like collar crime This is class warfare This is class
7: warfare this is class wolf. I want to get uh, to this to this final set of stories, and I think they're connected in a really interesting way. Uh, in the UK, over the weekend, UK Uncut, which is kind of the forerunner, actually, of Occupy Wall Street. UK Uncut began uh, after the election in 2010 of the current UK government, which is a liberal uh, Tory-Liberal Democrat coalition, which has gone on a brutal austerity spree. Uh, and, of course, they've been ground zero The economy hasn't recovered. It's gone into negative growth. Uh, You know, they want tax cuts. They want brutal brutal regressive spending, and they're letting uh, corporations get away with tax avoidance. And and this protest against HSBC, where uh, the UK Uncut Group shut down 13 branches of of HSBC across the UK this past weekend, in Glasgow, Sheffield, Brixton, and Regent Street in London, among other branches, uh they shut they temporarily shut down uh the banks and they opened up uh food banks uh, out front in their place as a protest against uh the HSBC systemic tax avoidance in Europe um which uh, has been condoned by the By the right wing government uh, in the u k uh, and obviously these types of tax policies were also condoned by the the labor government that preceded it. This is a very much a bipartisan problem in the u k just like it is in the united states uh, and and they they you know this was a significant public public accomplishment it brought u k uncut back onto the radar and it brought uh, you know some accountability to hSBC which, as we all know in addition to being world class tax avoiders they 're also the preferred to uh... uh, uh, drug uh, drug money launderers and terrorist money launderers for uh, global terrorist and drug cartels Um, and it's connected obviously this that protest is connected if not directly uh, but it's connected through ideas and through policies and through implications to the bankruptcy of Detroit, and it's connected to what Steve was talking about, which is the hollowing out of most of the country, and it's connected to skyrocketing student loan rates, and it's connected to the slashes in housing and services in the UK uh, w- without reigning in the financial sector there, which also led to their economic implosion. Uh, and this is so. So in all of these areas, we're seeing the starving of revenues, the systemic avoidance of taxes, and the systemic avoidance of really corporate accountability and a run amok financial sector. So, uh, David Atkins, writing for Digby, uh, highlighted that the the G20, uh, in at least what is a positive move on ideal level, is agreeing to get serious about coordinating on tax avoidance. Um, they're meeting uh, Uh, G20 ministers to try to come up with a coordinated strategy uh, to rein in systemic and massive tax avoidance. And we all know uh, Apple's use of incredibly elaborate schemes to avoid paying many taxes in the United States. Um, Another example from the UK, Starbucks last year paid no single corporate tax uh, in the United Kingdom, uh, despite generating nearly uh, $630 million in revenue. So this is the type of thing that we're seeing uh, across uh, the board. But as Atkins points out, coordination is grossly inadequate. Uh, it's a step in the right direction, but the problem is, is that there's no teeth in it. Um, and there there needs to be codified, built-in global rules on these types of things. We talk about the way a terrible trade agreement like TPP will codify lower worker, environmental, uh, and regressive intellectual property rights standards. Well, the problem is not global codification of standards per se. The problem is global codification of standards that only benefit a small group of corporate special interests, which we already know have way too much power over the policy making progress, process, and that's why these aren't even genuine trade deals. They're j- just preferential agreements for uh, capital to flow more easily through countries uh, uh, and 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 exploit various loopholes. And what Atkins says, and what I totally agree with, is that tax avoidance needs to be punishable in the same way. As harboring terrorists, it needs to be punishable in the same way uh, as some countries have been punished, uh, like Colombia was in the nineties for really directly aiding certain uh, drug cartels. Uh, this issue is the paramount issue of how we fund what we need to fund into the future, how we keep modern uh, government existing and functioning, and and society and the economy growing. And every time you see one of these. Ridiculous conversations of these people, you know, sitting around talking about nibbling at the edges of people's retirements, decimating the social safety net, and why we need more accountability and more of this and more that for people who are out there struggling to make a living, create opportunities for their families, uh, survive, and and you know, God forbid, even thrive in the modern economy. Remember this. Remember the massive coordination of tax avoidance across countries, across sectors, tech, finance. Oil, all the rest. It's a good step that they're actually talking about it, but this needs to have serious teeth because this is arguably the preeminent issue uh, of the age. So when you hear about TPP, fight against that and then tell your rep not only don't I want TPP, I want, uh, we don't even talk about a trade agreement until there is a global binding rules on tax avoidance and tax shelters. So we need to get serious about this, and these are some good initial steps, possibly. But they need real teeth. And congratulations to uh, to UK Uncut for what they did with the HSBC offices uh, over the weekend. That's great. And you know, there was actually this one moment. And we're going to switch in just a second, uh, but there was this great anecdote during one of the first protests that UK Uncut did. And I'm using this again because this was sort of the forerunner, in some ways, of Occupy. And obviously, you know, in Spain, Greece, there's a lot of movements. But in the UK, Uncut, uh, when the late when the Conservative government got into power, they forgave a massive tax bill um, that a phone company, whose name I'm forgetting, phone carrier in the UK, was avoiding through. Um, uh, they based some office in Belgium, basically, and they were routing. Uh, they were they were using Belgium to avoid a massive UK tax bill. Uh, to make a long story short, and these UK uncut protesters were outside protesting it, uh, and and this cop uh, began talking with some of the protesters. And obviously, we have a lot of terrible stories of, you know, how the police were used against Occupy Wall Street and all the rest. But in this case, the cop was actually listening to the protesters. He's like, "What what are you? What's the problem? Why are you guys out here?" I think it was Vodafone. I'm not sure. Why are you guys protesting? And the protesters simply explained, look, the equivalent of this tax bill, which is being forgiven, is the equivalent of this amount of, like, a housing allowance, which is being cut, which is going to make this many people lose their homes. And the cop said, wait a second, because he connected it with his own job, which is what you should. He said, wait a second, I might lose my job or my retirement because this company can't pay up? Pay its dues, even though they're at record profits. And that's exactly the point. So I, I, I think just those connections of the most very simple dots, wherever they can happen, uh, is really vitally important.
4: And you won't pay your dues,
1: and you won't compensate, and you won't compromise. So now you're going to have to wait.
9: It's obvious that we're creating a national security complex that is increasingly embedded in our way of life. Just would you say like the military-industrial complex that Dwight Eisenhower warned against?
10: Yeah, but we should remember the first version of Dwight Eisenhower's speech, which was not the military-industrial complex. It was the military-industrial-congressional complex. And they talked him out of, into getting, dropping the congressional from that story. But I think that's the most important one, the way in which the military-industrial complex is in bed with Congress and makes it so hard for Congress to make any sensible policy, so long as they're dependent upon both the military and the industry to fuel their political survival.
9: Look at these facts. Booz Allen, the company for whom Edward Snowden was an employee or contractor, the company Snowden worked for made $1.3 billion last year. Twenty-three percent of the company's total revenue from intelligence work. A former director of national intelligence, John McConnell, is now an executive at Booz Allen. He's gone through the revolving door. The chief intelligence official now, James Clapper, Jr., used to work at Booz Allen. And earlier this year, Booz Allen announced it was starting to work on a new contract worth perhaps as much as $5.6 billion over the next five years to provide intelligence to the Defense
10: Department. Now, add that up, Larry, and what do you get? I, you get a good picture of the way government doesn't work today. Um, you know, there are two very different revolving doors in Washington. Um, the defense revolving door is long-standing. Um, you know, people go work for the government, they have private, they have security clearance all the way up to the top, they go into private industry. They have the same security clearance. They're going between these two worlds. Part of the reason for that Is the reality that government employees don't get paid much relative to what they get paid on the outside. So here's the contract. You'll have a couple of bad years, and you'll have a bunch of good years, and a couple of bad years, and a bunch of good years. But that's the way in which defense contracting works or doesn't work because the question is always are the policymakers focused on preserving this revolving door or are they focused on what the underlying security of the nation is? Now my own bias is to think that many of those people are actually focused on the right thing. In the Defense Department, you know, soldiers, they go to work for the right reason in our government. Now, eventually they get out into the private world, but I think they were motivated by the right thing. The other revolving door, which is Washington, is the revolving door from Capitol Hill to K Street, where members of the lobbyists, lobbyists work, where members of Congress and their staffers in particular have a business model focused on their life after Washington, their life on K Street. You know, Jack Abramoff, who was the the infamous uh, lobbyist who went to federal penitentiary for his crimes, but has become a pretty important reformer, in my view, after he came back. In his uh, really great book, Capital Punishment, um, uh, he describes the most successful technique he had. He said, I would walk into a uh, senator's office and I would meet with the chief of staff and I would say, so what are you doing in two years? chief of staff would say, well, I don't know, Jack, and Jack would say, well, I want you to look me up after you're finished, and as Jack writes, from that moment on, I owned that chief of staff, and not a single dollar had traded hands, and so the point is, when you've got a system where they're focused on how they're going to help the lobbyists once they're out of Capitol Hill, how can they ever stand up to the lobbyist and do the right thing? Um, and that's the, that's the corrupt system that I'm much more concerned about in being able to make judgments about the future of this country. Well, I, I, before coming here, I watched the TED Talk you gave on this subject. Fifty percent of the Senate between 1998 and 2004 left to become lobbyists. Forty-two percent of the House. Those numbers have only gone up. And as United Republic calculated last April, the average increase in salary for those who they tracked was 1,452 percent. So it's fair to ask, how is it possible for them to change this? Now, I get this skepticism. I get this cynicism. I get this sense of impossibility. But I don't buy it. What
9: incentive do politicians and their staffers have to hold, whether it's the intelligence agencies that are now privately contracted out to Booz Allen and others like that, or any other corporation, what incentive do they have to change the system if they know they're headed for a fortune on K Street?
10: Yeah. If they have an incentive, it's a conflicted incentive. It's the sort of incentive that leads most people to have no confidence in the institution. You know, the latest Rasmussen poll found six percent of America thinks Congress is doing a good job. Six percent. Right? At what point does an institution have to confess political bankruptcy, right? Because we have no confidence in Congress. We have no confidence in Congress. Right? In parliamentary systems, there's a vote. No confidence in Congress. Well, we, the people, need to have the same vote, and we have voted again and again. We have no confidence in this institution. And what those members of Congress have to recognize is that they have a constitutional obligation to recreate a context, an environment, a system where we have a reason to trust them and where they're spending their time you know, for... Hours a day, uh, raising money from the tiniest fraction of the 1% to get back into Congress, to get their party back into power. Ordinary Americans look at that and say, why would I trust you? Why would I trust you?
9: So from your experience, what's been the impact on everyday people of this this kind of branding fundraising?
10: Well, I mean, there's impact in policy, like the things that Congress worries about are different from what Congress would worry about if Congress were not so focused on raising money. So, for example, um, uh, the Huffington Post did a fantastic little piece about this. They, They asked the question, in the first quarter of 2011, what was the number one issue Congress spent its time working on? you know, on the floor of the Congress and in committees. You know, we had a lot of issues at that point. We're in the middle of two wars, huge unemployment crisis, Um, we had a debt crisis, we had a government was about to be shut down in the summer. There's a lot of issues they could have been focused on. So what was number one? And the answer is the bank swipe fee controversy. You know, the question of when you use your debit card How much do the banks get? How much do the credit card companies have to pay? And why was that number one? Because when a member of Congress stands on the floor of Congress and says, well, you know, I'm not sure. There's a lot of good arguments on one side, a lot of good arguments on the other side, millions of dollars rain down upon that congressman by these two powerful interests that are keen to try to sway Congress one way or the other. Uh, And so the point is, why, you know, We have a system where Congress can't afford to address the most important issues. Like how much does it pay to talk about unemployment on the floor of Congress? Mm. How much money mm. do you actually get for addressing issues that are important to America? And and, it, and, and and I think the really important thing here is to recognize it's not because they're evil. It's not because they're bad people. It's not because they're criminals. The kind of corruption we've got today... It's not bad souls, it's good souls, it's good people who are living within a system that forces them to behave in a certain way, to to, to succeed, and I think what we need to do is to say to those people, we understand, but you are responsible for fixing this, and you could fix this. Without changing the Constitution, you you could take the most important first step in fixing this, and if you don't, then you are responsible for destroying the most important democratic branch we've got.
9: Here's a third term, Democrat. Jim Hines, a Connecticut representative, member of the Financial Services Committee, a former banker at Goldman Sachs, and one of the top recipients of Wall Street money. He says, quote, it's appalling, it's disgusting, it's wasteful, and it opens the possibility of conflicts of interest and corruption. It's unfortunately, he said, the world we live in. Now, is he just being pragmatic and you and I are
10: just being idealistic? <laughs> he's tr- He's correct. It is It is all of those things. It's a product of the world he lives in. But here's the difference. You and I can't change that world. He could. He and a majority in Congress and the majority uh, in the House of Representatives and the majority of the Senate could pass legislation tomorrow which would radically change the way Congress raised its money. So Jim Himes and other Democrats would not be begging to Goldman Sachs, his former employer, or other Wall Street banks for the money they need to run their campaigns, but they would be getting the money to run their campaigns from all of us so that they could begin to say, what's actually in the interest of my uh, constituents? What actually would help America here? As opposed to, what can I not afford to do if I want to continue to raise the money I need to raise from Wall Street or the pharmaceutical companies or the doctors or every other major interest that has the capacity to veto any sensible reform in our American government. They could change this tomorrow. They should be sitting down and figuring out how do we put together the coalition that's necessary to to make this right. And that coalition is not just Democrats. There are people on the right who are as disgusted by what they call crony capitalism, which corrupts both our government and our capitalist system. They are just as disgusted, they are just as motivated, and if we had a Congress and leaders in Congress who were willing to think about the fundamental reform this would take, um, they could do it. They could do it tomorrow but they are too comfortable, maybe, they are too weak, maybe, they are too small, maybe, they are not the leaders that, um, you know, we romanticize from the uh, the past. We're willing to say, okay, it may destroy my party, it may destroy me, but this is what I'm going to do.
3: Wolfpack, guess what's happening? Massachusetts, we're coming. We're coming to your house. We're coming to your house. Well, actually, literally. Uh, state legislature next week considering a resolution for a constitutional convention to get an amendment to get money out of politics. They said it couldn't be done. So far, they're right, but we're coming. <laughs> we've got a lot of progress i've been telling you about in all these different states iowa new york california texas etc right now great news in massachusetts senator james eldridge has uh, proposed s1727 that's in the senate side of massachusetts obviously and then representative jason lewis has proposed h3190 and that is to of course as i explained uh do the resolution that we think is absolutely necessary to save the republic which is An amendment to get money out of politics, but not just vague steps, action. We are calling for a convention to get that specifically for that amendment. If Washington isn't going to do it, and I guarantee you they're not going to do it, there is a different way. Article 5 Founding Fathers were geniuses. They put a key in the Constitution saying when Washington gets corrupt enough, the states will have to do states' rights and take hold of the Matters in their own hands. Call for a constitutional convention to get amendment to clean up Washington. I love these two leaders in Massachusetts and everybody else. You know, uh, legendary uh, Harvard law professor Larry Lessig, the godfather of this movement, testifying next week. Go to wolf-pack.com a to find out more. B. Uh, to sign up, especially if you're in Massachusetts or anywhere near Massachusetts, we need volunteers right now. Okay, and if you can't, you can do incredibly simple things like sign the petition. Every little bit helps. That's on wolfpack.com, and if you're a member, you help sustain our fight, so we can take it to all these different states. So uh, we really appreciate the membership. We love what they're doing in Massachusetts. Let's go get it done.
8: Uh, random uh, thought, random thought of Wolfpack and everything. Yeah. Imagine, you know, money's out of politics, and then you actually get to hear what politicians think. The guys who go there, what they actually believe, and things they would actually vote on if they really cared. You'd find yourself maybe agreeing with like John Boehner, Ted Cruz. Can you can you deal with that?
3: Yeah. No, no, no. I I can <laughs> totally deal with it. now look. Imagine you, the world. I know. If you took money out of politics. It's amazing the agreements we could have. I know, because I've actually talked to some of the most conservative people in the country on this issue. And I've talked to the heads of some Tea Party groups. When you actually have a face to face conversation with people and you break things down and you get rid of all the nonsense, well, I'm not talking about politicians, I'm talking about actual people who care and have deep conservative ideology. You know what happens? You're shocked at how many times you agree. Because they don't want a government that sucks. We don't want a government that sucks. We want to be able to, both sides want to s- spend their tax dollars to good effect. Now, oftentimes we have huge disagreements on how to do that, right? But if, if you're actually honest, you can come to a lot of great agreements if you take that, the idea of money out of politics. And that's exactly what we're trying to do. And it'd be awesome to go back to a debate about real issues and ideas instead of who's on the right side and who's got more money. Who's on the right side based on who's got more money. All right, Massachusetts, it's your time. Make it happen.
0: Hi everyone, today in lieu of asking you to support this show, I want to ask you to support my fundraising effort for this year's climate ride. This will be my second year in a row raising money for 350.org, the best climate organization I know of with a massive international reach, and the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, the best local climate organization which works in Maryland, DC, and Virginia, and also happens to be the place where I used to work, so I know personally how much they deserve the support. In exchange for you helping me reach my goal of $2,400 raised, I will be riding my bike the 300 miles between New York City and Washington, D.C. over the course of five days in September. To contribute, simply visit climateride.org and search for my name, Jay, and you'll see the full name, Jay Tomlinson, pop right up. Click the name, see my fundraising page, and make a tax-deductible donation. I've already contributed to get the ball rolling. Thanks in advance for your support.
9: You see the headline in the newspaper, Americans are not really concerned about, don't really care about uh, uh, campaign finance reform. You've seen those polls, and they're not riled up about it. So the anger isn't coming from below to pressure the candidates to do anything about reforming the system.
10: Look, in July of 2012, Gallup did their annual, their quad-annual poll. What is the most important issue that the next president should address? Number two on that list second only to jobs, was, quote, corruption in Washington. Mm. Now, by corruption, people were not thinking of Rob Lagojevich or Randy Duke Cunningham because those issues were nowhere in the press. That's what they make in
9: human nature. That's, that's right.
10: Issues. They were thinking about the issue that was in their newspapers every single day. Um, the citizens, consequences of Citizens United, like these super PACs, spending unbelievable amounts of money, seeing the candidates, Republican candidates too, flinging themselves around the country to raise money to run their campus. And they're thinking this system is deeply corrupt. That was number two. Now, no candidate, Obama or Romney, even mention the issue on their website. And I had a researcher look at this, I said, tell me the last time there was an issue that was on the top 10 of this list that neither party even mentioned. And he looked as far as he could find, and there was not ever a time that an issue on the top 10 list was not even mentioned by either party. So there's a wonderful, convenient reality of our political party is that they don't want to talk about this issue. They constantly say it's not an issue America cares about. But I think America doesn't care about it because they say, what's the use? Nobody's okay. going to talk about it, nobody's going to take it up, nobody's going to do anything about it. I've got better things to worry about. So, of course, they don't care about it, they don't talk about it, and they also don't participate, they don't vote, they don't get involved because they rationally look at the system and say, the system is bought and I don't have the money.
9: You have been putting forward a great big idea that you think might make a significant difference in this and radically
10: change the system. It's called the money bomb. It, yeah, well, right, the money bomb is a mechanism for creating the political power that we need to force this change. The change is not such a huge change relative to what other states, even what New York is thinking about right now, just changing the way you fund elections. But the money bomb is, let's figure out how much it would cost in the next two election cycles to win enough seats in the United States Congress to guarantee we get this change. You know, I don't know what that number is, but we're hiring a group to find, calculate that number. Let's say it's a half a billion dollars. So then let's go around to 50 billionaires and say to them, okay, we want you to write, we want you to promise in a Kickstarter-like way that if we find 49 other people to write a check for that number over 50 you will write a check for that same amount. So whether it's a $10 million check or a $50 million check, I don't know what the number is going to be, but commit to us that you do that. So that by the end of this, we've got a super PAC with the power to end all super PACs. It would be for the purpose of electing representatives and a president committed to, we'd identify the package of reform they've got a, pro- they've got a promise. So you go into a district and you say, okay, fine. Um, If this congressperson is not committed to that, we're going to take that congressperson off. uh, Take that congressperson off. We're
9: going to punish him for not supporting
10: reform. Right. Now, of course, um, you had Jonathan Soros on your show, and Jonathan Soros gave us the pilot that demonstrated how powerful this idea could be. Soros ran a little uh, super PAC called Friends of Democracy. They targeted eight seats, they spent about $2.5 million, not a lot of money, and seven of those eight seats flipped in the way they wanted it to flip. They made money in politics the issue, and in seven of those eight seats, people came out and said, fine, that's right, this guy uh, is corrupt in our view, and we're going to take him out. Now, if you, in 2014, went from eight seats to 80 seats, and you won even 50 of those 80 seats, on the basis of money in the politics, so if you had $50 million in 2014, and you won 50 of those seats. That would terrify the United States Congress. So when you came back in 2016, there would be a lot of people who would all of a sudden magically have become reformers in this fight, and we would have a real chance to get a Congress committed to, in 2017, their very first bill being the bill to enact the change that gives us a reason, once again, to have confidence in the system. Now, it's a huge fight, and the reason the money bob has got to be so big is that the closer we get and the closer that K Street realizes that we might actually have a chance of winning, they're gonna create all sorts of pushback. Because if we win, lobbyists don't go away. We need lobbyists. Lobbyists are an important part of our system. But the value of lobbying services gets cut in half, right? Because they are no longer the fundraiser lobbyist. They are just somebody, a policy wonk, giving a good idea about what they want. So, you know, as John Edwards used to say when we used to quote John Edwards, um, there's <laughs> the, all the, the difference the in former the world. John Edwards. Yeah. <laughs> there's all the difference in the world between a lawyer making an argument to a jury and a lawyer handing out $100 bills to the jurors. And our lobbying system doesn't understand that difference.
9: So the purpose of this pact to end all super PACs would be to go to 20 billionaires, ask them to give 20 to $40 million dollars to put themselves out of business, in a yeah. way, by backing candidates who want to reform the system, including with public
10: funding. Yeah, yeah. Now, the kind of um, citizen funding I think we need is, is not the old kind where the government sort of writes a check, you know, just $50 million to run your campaign, but a kind where we empower citizens to exercise their choice about how to, how to spend the money that they've gotten. Now, you know, New York right now is considering uh, the governor is going to introduce a proposal for matching fund system to fund elections in New York, modeled on the, on the New York City model, where if you give $100, it's matched six to one. Really? Um, my own version of the system would be basically hand out vouchers or coupons to every single voter, right? So if every single voter got a $50 voucher, you say, the first $50 of your taxes, we're going to send back in the form of a voucher. And you can give that voucher to any candidate who agrees to fund his or her campaign with vouchers only plus maybe contributions of up to $100. Now, that $50 alone would be $7 billion in the system. So that's real money. But the point is it would be real money coming from all of us rather than from the tiniest fraction of the 1%. So it's like the voting system where all of us have a vote, all of us would have a voucher, and we could begin to produce a Congress which is once again concerned not only to respond to a large number of us in the voting booth, but also to respond to a large number of us in the funding booth.
9: What percentage of Americans are contributing most of the money for the rest of us?
10: Well, if you look at the number of Americans who give the maximum amount to any congressional candidate, um, that number is at about, in 2010, was at about 140,000 people. So that means .05% of America gives the maximum amount to any candidate and of course it's that kind of person that the congress people are calling when they're sitting there with their headsets on dialing for dollars. So what I try to get people to recognize is how tiny that number is. And it turns out that's the same number of people who happen to be named Lester, right? So <laughs> so it's basically we've created Lesterland where Lesters are the people the congress people call to fund their campaigns and then they turn around to the rest of us and they try to get us to vote for them. But In the process of talking to the Lester's to fund their campaigns, the Lester's have their influence. And it changes the agenda and what's on the table for Congress to even consider long before we get to vote.
9: You're a good lawyer. What's the best argument against your reform?
10: Well, there's a lot of arguments about unintended consequences. I I get that there are risks. But, you know, the question isn't what's the risk-free thing we can do. The question is what is the thing that minimizes the probability that we are going to face catastrophic consequences from failing to address the issues we all know we need to address: the tax code, the climate, climate change, um, having a healthcare system that actually cures people, financial reform on Wall Street, which we have not really, really begun at all. I mean, these are all important issues. That if we can't address, our nation is sunk, and so. I understand we need to worry about what the consequences of this might be but we also need to act vigorously to change a system which any rational soul has got to believe is corrupted.
11: Hey, Jay, it's DJ again from South Bend. Um, Something I wanted to add, and it's not I want to, like, pile on the Ben from Orlando or, like, claim that he's not any kind of empathetic. Hey, it's Ben from Orlando. But it's something that's kind of easy when you're coming from a place of privilege to just completely dismiss something that someone that's not privileged is going through. The problem isn't racism. The problem isn't poverty. The problem isn't any of that. The problem is the law. Say that, you know, race really had no factor or poverty had no factor in any of this. It's really kind of easy to say when you don't, when you can't see it through that lens, and it's something that maybe um, a lot of progressives really can really learn from is to, you know, try to look at what the people of color around are seeing and say, you know, this isn't just about one law. It's about that there's so many laws that hurt young black men and young black women, young brown men, young brown women, and so just to really push it aside isn't isn't really okay. You know, you got to be able to be empathetic and check your privilege and realize that. But there's a lot of laws in this country, not just this one, that really adversely affects all of us people of color in a way that not necessarily affects those that are not of color. Um, that's really all I wanted to add. Again, thanks for what you're doing. Have a great day.
12: Hey Jay, it's Wade again. Got a quick response to I believe it was Ben in Orlando. Forgive me if I got the name wrong. The problem is the law. Had the law not been in place that said that you can kill somebody as long as you're afraid of them, then this wouldn't have happened. Standing your ground takes a little bit more than just you were afraid of somebody before you can shoot him or stab him or beat him to death or whatever you choose to. However you choose to defend yourself, that was a little bit of an oversimplification. And George Zimmerman didn't shoot Trayvon Martin because he was scared of him. He shot him because he was pounding his head and do the concrete. Um, that's why he shot him. So that's a little bit different story. But I can support some, either some changes to stand your ground or, or something that says that you can't even come close to provoking the confrontation. Uh, you can't put yourself in the situation to be allowed to use your gun or again your knife or whatever you're gonna use to defend yourself. And you see, as many of you know, I'm a gun owner and I own a lot of guns, but I don't carry a gun mainly because I don't want the responsibility. Because if you get into a confrontation, you pretty much either have to walk away or you have to pull your gun because if you get into a fight, now there's a gun involved in the fight and you're the one that brought it there, you see. Now I'm not saying that everyday confrontations happen in my life, in fact they rarely do, but they do happen. You know, those, those times when you something you hear a strange noise or somebody's looking weird and they might be up to something so you kind of get close to investigate just to see, you know, somebody flips you off on the highway and throws something at your car. Well, you can't go chase that guy down and teach him a lesson because you have a gun. You have got to basically be, for lack of a better word, a woods. okay? So I can support something that says that there is, you know, you can't, you, I don't even know how I'm trying to word this. You can't necessarily get out of your car and put yourself in the situation, okay? I can support that, but as a repealing Stand Your Ground, no, I don't support that at all. Stand Your Ground has saved far more lives than it has taken. I guarantee that, okay? It's putting the onus on the criminal or the attacker, the aggressor, and not the innocent person that's what its intent is okay it's simply designed to protect the law-abiding person yes there are going to be times that it gets misused cops misuse their guns too is anybody advocating that we take their sidearms away i know some people have said that but they're not saying so we're not listening to that Stand your ground is a good law. It may need some tweaks, and I can support that. But I do not support the repealing of it altogether and the reintroduction of that bullshit retreat factor. That's crap. You should not have to retreat in the face of an attacker. You should have to prove that you had no avenue of retreat. That's bullshit. And that's something that Stand Your Ground was meant to close. Anyway, that's
6: my thoughts on it, Jay. Later. Hey, this is Dave from Olympia, Washington. I called about four days ago about the Traylon Martin. Excuse me. <clears throat> Traylon Martin was not on trial. George Zimmerman was technically on trial. Um, I had about the jury decision and, um had a quote, uh, and in my mind I conflated a series of quotes that I've compiled uh, in, a, in a document in the past. Anyhow, I promise to call back and give you those references. first one is from the case of O'Connell v. Rex from 1884, and the quote is, Every jury in the land is tampered with and falsely instructed by the judge when it is told that it must accept the law which has been given to them, or that they can decide only the facts of the case. The second co- quote was Justice Holmes from Homing v. District of Columbia, 1920. The jury has the power to bring in a verdict in the teeth of both the law and the facts. And then from History of the Constitution by Bancroft, if a jury accepts the law, which a judge State, then that juror has accepted the exercise of absolute authority of a government employee and has surrendered a power and a right that was once a citizen's safeguard of liberty. Next is from U.S. versus Moia under the First Circuit Court of Appeals from 1969. If the jury feels the law is unjust, we must recognize the undisputed power of the jury to acquit, even if the verdict is contrary to the law as given by the judge and contrary to the evidence. And last, from Sheffin and Van Dye, Law and Security Problems, from 1980. When a jury acquits a defendant, even though he or she clearly appears to be guilty, the acquittal conveys significant information about community attitudes and provides a guideline for future prosecutorial discretion. Because of the high acquittal rate in the Prohibition case of the 1920s and 1930s, Prohibition laws could not be enforced. The repeal of these laws is traceable to the refusal of juries to convict those accused of alcohol traffic. Anyhow, uh, love everything you do. Stay awesome, Jay.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So today, I, I think I'm going to wrap this up in a nice little bow uh, that, that we can all agree on. I'm sure there won't be any controversy left about the Zimmerman trial uh, once I'm done here. Uh, so first, a little bit of background on on Wade, who we heard from today. He he called in. He left another message that didn't get Played on the show it was about four and a half minutes of him expressing quite a lot of frustration and anger, and and talking about how and why he was a big Zimmerman supporter, and to, to the point of actually donating to the Zimmerman Defense Fund. So that's where he's coming from. So today we heard his take on Stand Your Ground, nice little clarification on, on you know what it means, and actually you know some thoughts on how it could and probably should be amended. So that was really nice to hear. And, and frankly, he didn't say anything in that message today that seemed the least bit unreasonable to me. Uh, it seems really blatantly obvious that Stand Your Ground is, you know, maybe controversial. I, I don't, you know, the, the the tenets of it, the the concept of it is, you know, I I think not entirely unreasonable. But when you leave out the incredibly crucial element of, uh, you know, of saying that you cannot actually instigate the conflict that you find yourself in and then claim, uh, you know, self-defense and, or the use of the Stand Your Ground law when you've taken another person's life, that seems really obvious to me. Now, don't get me wrong, I know the Zimmerman defense, uh, you know, side did not actually use Stand Your Ground in their defense But of course, it was in the jury instructions from the judge and the jury said that it was definitely used as part of their deliberations in the case. So then we move on. We have uh, Dave from Olympia, Washington, who gave us a lot of interesting quotes about the history of you know juries, and really what all of those were getting at was something called jury nullification. So what's jury nullification? I just did some quick and dirty research on it. It's you know because I I didn't have it fresh at the top of my mind. It's not something many people hear about very often, uh, but it actually has a long illustrious history uh, of use in uh, you know the court system in America. In which, basically, the idea is that the jury is allowed to rule however they want to rule. The law can say whatever it says. The judge can give the jury whatever instructions the judge feels uh, is appropriate. And the jury, if they feel like it, can ignore literally all of it and come to whatever verdict they want. And so that's called jury nullification. Uh, Generally speaking... The the examples you'll find most often is that a person is acquitted of a crime, even though it can be easily shown that they broke the laws that are on the books, but they are acquitted because it, it's felt to be unjust, uh, that the law in place is unjust. A couple of examples are uh, acquittals during the Salem Witch Trials, which eventually led to the repeal of those ridiculous laws. Similarly, uh, along the same lines, prohibition laws. People were being put on trial for breaking uh, prohibition laws. They obviously broke the letter of the law and were acquitted anyways because of juries, uh, you know, enacted jury nullification based on the judgment that the laws themselves were unjust. And so this actually goes back uh, really far. The the, uh, the oldest definition of a jury, at least in America, that I can find, I, I went back to the 1828 Uh, original Webster's Dictionary in which, uh, as part of the definition of a jury, Webster's Dictionary says, petty juries consisting usually of 12 men attend courts to try matters of fact in civil causes and to decide both the law and the fact in criminal prosecutions. And I think that's key. I think that lays it out really nicely that juries get to actually judge the law itself and not just Uh, the defendant who's accused of breaking the law on the books. And so uh, you can talk till you're blue in the face, as people absolutely have calling into this show, uh, dozens of minutes of voicemails that haven't been played on the show, in which, uh, you know, people very calmly explain, well, it's all about the law, you know, and the law is what it is. And anyone who thinks that the Jury should have come to any other conclusion is just silly, and they don't know what they're talking about, and the, the facts are, are what they are, and the law is what it is, and if you think that it's a bad law, then you need to change the law, but until then, obviously, the only ruling that the jury could have possibly come to is uh, the not guilty verdict that they did, and if you have a problem with that, well, then you're just a you know a, a silly person, and the fact is, That's simply not the case. What this means for the Zimmerman case is that uh, nullification can go both ways. Uh, You can acquit someone when they are obviously guilty of of an unjust law, and you can convict someone who is, uh, although maybe obviously not guilty of the laws on the books, but is clearly guilty uh, of something based on the pure sense of justice that we all have. And so as, you know, going back to Wade's call— even a, a, a you know ardent Zimmerman supporter recognizes that you can't actually be the person to engage in a conflict first and then claim self-defense. And he even went as far as to say, uh, you know, you shouldn't get out of your car. And Zimmerman was, as we all know by now, specifically directed to not leave his car and not follow Trayvon Martin. He chose to do that, knowing full well that he had a gun going into the circumstances, and and created. The the entire event himself, specifically when he was told not to, that is a perfect time for a jury to nullify the, the, the laws on the books and the instructions of the judge to send a clear message that the laws are unjust and need to be changed because jury nullification is about the right of a jury to inject a bit of humanity into the proceedings in an attempt to reach more than just a verdict, but to reach justice. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks especially to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all of that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com
5: and it's a cry and shame how we
1: get so trained